also very special uh, guests this morning, um, Ash and Angie Barker, um, who are with us uh, before they fly out to the UK on um, the 20th, so counting down the days. Um, for those who don't know, Ash and Angie were, were uh, the founders of, uh, you know, Urban Labours of Hope, uh, which were, um, were, they were based in Bangkok for quite a period of time. I guess you'll be sharing a little bit about your story, so I don't need to kind of give you the big, kind of say how wonderful you are, but um, uh, why don't we give them a warm welcome this morning. Uh, it's great to have you with us, and I'll hand over to you. Thanks, Dave. Oh, so good to be with you, and uh, wow, it's great to see so many people here this morning. Uh, the theme I really want to address this morning is how do we develop a resilient spirituality in the face of drama, in the face of struggles? Uh, how do we build a sense of community with other people? But what is a kind of a spirituality that can help be robust enough and resilient enough to cope with all that uh, happens in our lives? Uh, she's right. For the last 12 years, we've lived in Klong Toy, one of the largest slums in Bangkok. It's a slum of 100,000 people in a square kilometer. And so there was times where we felt rushed and pushed around by all the needs around us. Um, I do want to show a short video clip just to give some background of what we've been doing uh, so I can kind of bounce off that and then explore this, this theme of a resilient spirituality in in times of mission and community building. So uh, hopefully, cheers, we've got that. Thank you. The 21st century is the first urban century. It's the first century where the majority of people have lived in urban areas. And so a lot of the assumptions we make about mission and development over the last two or three hundred years, you just can't, you can't make those assumptions here. The numbers are huge. I mean, you're talking growing 100,000 new people a day, talking about one in six people at the moment. It could be half the world by the middle of the century. And it's part of that which is frightening for the world. You know, you think we have urban riots now, you wait till half the world lives in slums. You've got incredible wealth right next to incredible despair and poverty, and the resentment and anger and access actually becomes a serious issue. That's the world we're headed for, unless. I think unless Christians are the ones who take responsibility, take action and move into these places to help bring about change, to help fight for justice, to not be on the side of the rich but to be on the side of the poor in this because it is that stark in a place like Bangkok. Those first two years, I think God really had us on a journey of stripping everything away that any experience we'd had in Australia, any of our qualifications, it meant nothing in this context because we were totally intuitively blind, deaf and dumb because everything was so different. Sharing your life with people is what it's all about here, so you can't really do that in a program diarised way. It has to be a bit messier, it has to be a bit more heart to heart and, and life to life. We read quite a few books in the early days that said, oh, you'll never get close to Thai people, they don't open up, it's very superficial with Farangs, and found very quickly that wasn't the case. And I just think because they didn't have that face-saving space, because we live in one room, and so when people are fighting, beating each other up, it happens all in front of everybody. We kind of all live your life outside a bit together. So if somebody's screaming at their husband because he's stolen everything in the house to buy his drugs, or um, someone's got very drunk and... You know, beating up their children terribly. They all know that we know. We see and hear the same things. 
Alicia's one of our workers and she loves kids. And her big thing with kids is they've got to help the kids tap into their imaginations because a lot of the kids when they first come, they have very little imagination, very little time to play. It's all kinds of gut survival instinct stuff, you know. If we are supposed to be here pointing to the hope of God that's already here, how do people see that if they don't have an imagination? Because if you can't think of something different, a different possibility, a different way to do stuff, you can't actually have hope. And so for me, I've really been trying to make sure that the kids have opportunity to develop their imagination so that when they become adults, they don't lose that. So there's seven of us here in uh, Klongtoy, and so we try to be catalysts and try to spark things. But then we work with all kinds of groups. So there's the Klongtoy Community Centre, and there's a football, and there's a school, and there's handicrafts, and it's quite a hub of activity that kind of goes on, and that's spun off all kinds of things, micro-enterprises, booze cooking school. Before Angie Barker and family live here, and she have a look me to sell the food in front of my home. Yeah, in the soil. And she said with me, why Kun Pu? Hard work, start 5 o'clock to 9 p.m., no holiday. But I have holiday today, tomorrow no money. She helped me open the cooking school. First time I say with her, no thank you, allow five time. She said, why? Many people in the slum working with you. I say with her, I know, understand English. She good friend, help me for speak English every day. Yeah. The conditions are tough. I mean, particularly in the heat of the summer where it's 40 degrees and the open sewers here start to really bong and you're feeling sick and just get exhausted really quickly. So physically it's hard and spiritually it's hard. The demonic, the supernatural is a normal part of life here. We're seeing slowly, we are seeing lives change, but it's not at all how we would have imagined it. So had you told me five years ago, six years ago, that we would have this team of local leaders, most of who are a gay and lesbian or transgendered. I mean, that's not the gender I have, but they're the people God's working in their lives. They're the people that want to change the community, and that's who God's given us, and how exciting. Yeah, it's not saying that uh, pessimism's a cop-out, optimism is impossible. All that's left is Christian hope, and there is a very strong sense that that is so true for us. What is possible today and even tomorrow may not be what we want. And it is easy to be overwhelmed, get depressed really by, by what goes on here. But that sense that Jesus is here and this is not going to be all there is and that one day this will be transformed, hopefully in our lifetime, maybe not. But that we know where the story is going is really, really important. Uh, the kingdom come, you know, you can see it, you can see signs of it. And in the end we realise we're not a solution, we're just a sign of that kingdom. And that's important to us. Lord, I thank you for each person here and the way you have your hand on their lives. Lord, that there are challenges that they're facing, that there's great joy as well in what you're doing in each person. And I pray today as your spirit leads and guides, you would give us something that would help us sustain the journey to go the next level in our intimacy with you and our connectedness with you and our connectedness and intimacy with others and the places where we live. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite writers. Has anyone read anything from Walter Brueggemann? Oh, yes. One person. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> favorite author. Wow. I hope I'm not, uh, yeah, I hope I'm not recovering things you've already covered. But Brueggemann really helped me pray again. Because, and pray in ways that make sense, in ways that express uh, my concerns, express what's going on in my life. Particularly, he helped me pray the Psalms. And he talked about three kinds of Psalms. The first kind of Psalm is the Psalm of orientation. That is when things are going like they should be going. When we step out in faith and we reach out to touch folk, to be with them, to share God's love, and they respond. And God works in their lives. And there are psalms, I think, that help us get out there, that are psalms of gratefulness, psalms of, yes, Lord, this is the way it should be. A psalm, for example, is Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have found in a bulwark because of, of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. Or Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in your name. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And in Kong Toy, there are times where things worked. <laughs> and I think uh, those of us who have been in any kind of mission, community experience, sometimes we do have to remember that, <laughs> that uh, despite the disappointments that we often feel, God does his work. One of my favorite stories is, uh, is Pooh, who you saw up there. Her name is Pooh, P-O-O. Uh, and she was one of our neighbors when we first arrived in Klongtoy and um, we got to know her. She used to sell food at the front of her house and I loved it. It was great, delicious Thai food, you know, pad thai and fried rice. Fried rice in Thai, of course, is uh, cow pat, which was always easy to remember. <laughs> uh, and I actually really loved it when my mother-in-law is, is Dutch and uh, she would come over for a... Uh, for the visit, and the kids would say, Omar, Omar, we've got poo food for dinner tonight. And Omar would be, what, what, that's not really Christian to eat poo? Something like that. <laughs> and the kids say, no, no, poo's food is delicious. Can't have it. And she would love the food. But one day the price of rice went through the roof. Um, just suddenly, you know, she couldn't uh, cook and make her food and sell it for the same price, but people's wages hadn't gone up. And so she kind of really felt, well, People will go hungry if I, if I raise the price. So she was just kind of hoping and wishing that things would change, but they didn't, and she was beginning to get into debt. So she talked to Ange and, uh, and said, yes, there's something else I could do. And Ange said, well, why don't you start a cooking school for tourists? You'll be, you'll be great at it. And uh, she said, well, I can't speak English. I, you know, I really struggle. I'm not sure I could do something like that. Um, we had some friends come and visit, and she took them to the local market. She said, well, just see how it goes, you know. And the local market, has anyone been to Bangkok before? Oh, a few more people have been to Bangkok than Red Brueggemann. How about that? <laughs> uh, 
the markets are crazy, aren't they? I mean, so she take them to the local market and there's cockroaches for sale and fried frogs and you know, the frogs have their stomachs cut open and the hearts are still beating, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's wild. And then she took them back to her house and showed them how to, how to cook nutritious Thai meals. People loved it. And then uh, Leanne Green, who's here, and others kind of got around Pooh and helped to get business plan together and marketing ideas. And within six months, uh, Helping Hands Cooking School got to number one on TripAdvisor. Number two was the Grand Palace. Quite amazing, eh? And, uh, and then a friend of ours, Shelley from Melbourne, was a photographer, and she came across and said, you've got to do a cookbook. Let's take some photographs. And she took the photos of the food. Now, I'm not a photographer. I thought this would all be over in maybe 20 minutes, get a whole lot of food, take some photographs, and uh, that'll be done, have a cup of coffee. No, it doesn't work like that. You're going to have the right light and the colours, and two weeks of incredible effort went in to kind of put the, the photographs together and tell the stories of local people. And the cookbook, Cooking with Pooh, was launched. Someone, we do, still don't know the person who did this, but someone put, entered Cooking with Pooh into the Frankfurt Book Fair, the biggest book fair in the world, and it won an award for the oddest book title of the year. <laughs> Comedians picked it up all around the world. Uh, Andrew Denton in this con- country, Jonathan Ross in the, in the U- UK, uh, The Guardian did a story, all kinds of people. Uh, Stephen Fry put it, tweeted about it. Uh, Jamie Oliver even tweeted about it. In fact, Jamie Oliver invited Pooh earlier this year to come and do a TV show with him. And uh, Jamie Oliver's there you see, on FoodTube, his FoodTube channel. And Jamie's wearing the bib that says, I cooked with Pooh and I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> when BBC did an interview with Pooh, they said, did you know cooking with Pooh was Googled 25 million times? I assume it's for the cookbook, but it is the internet. You never quite know what people are looking at there. But the great joy and the, it isn't just the success of, because actually success doesn't always turn out spiritually well for people, does it? It can actually, you know, expand people's horizons, but they not cope with it. And for a woman in the slum with all the dramas of that to suddenly have success like this, you know, you can worry what would happen. But uh, good things happen. <laughs> Actually, when I had my book launch for Slum Life Rising, it was my PhD thesis. I needed all the help I could get. So I had my celebrity, fre- uh, celebrity chef friend come with me. And uh, we had the book launch at the Foreign Correspondents Press Club in Bangkok. And Pooh was there. Actually, I think my next book is going to be Mission with Pooh. <laughs> yeah, that might do better. Uh, but the, one of the questions went directly to Pooh. They said to her, look, you're so successful. It's amazing what you've done with the cookbook, with the cooking school. But why do you still live in Klong Toy if you don't need to? I mean, you have boys, you have family. Why are you still there? She said, well, it is true that um, you know, we've sold a lot of books and a lot of people come. But actually, I've given a lot of that money into Helping Hands um, to help other people start small businesses. Because we used to have to work from five in the morning till nine at night. We'd never have a day off. If we did, we couldn't eat. But now we're going to have days off. Now I can have holidays. Now I want other people to have the same opportunity that I have had. And, uh, and so she stays. And it is amazing, actually, what God has done in her life. She really does see it as a gift from God. 
and then which is part of Friday night church and sharing with others and giving other people opportunities. Think, wow, there's a lot to be grateful for when it works out like that. Uh, and I still believe it does. Um, uh, Twenty, well, this is my 25th year of urban mission work, and uh, these are the kinds of stories that help me get out there. But there are other kinds of psalms and other kinds of experiences that we have to come to terms with. Brueggemann calls them psalms of disorientation or psalms of lament. It's that when we love people and we care for them, we go out of our way to, uh, to be there for them, to stand with them in community, to build that sense of belonging with others. It doesn't work out. And in Klong Toy, there are times where it, when it doesn't work out, it really doesn't work out. It becomes a dangerous place. I remember uh, uh, when fires would come through Klongtoy. The one morning, it was dark. Um, we lived in a small house about the size of four double beds initially. And uh, there was a fire that came. You know, I knew it was a fire because the lights, all the electricity had gone out. There was no fan to blow the hot air around anymore. Um, it was pitch black because we had no windows in our house and I'm kind of feeling for Anne, she's not there. I think, am I having a nightmare, you know, but I get up out of my bed, I get across, I get to the fridge and I know that the door is just, you know, not far away. Anne suddenly opens the door, the light kind of comes in and says, Ash, there's a fire. This is no time to eat. Come on. <laughs> uh, but that day, you know, people got the fire out quickly, but there were days when they didn't. And I remember that one of our neighbours, a little boy with Down syndrome, uh, had been tied up by his grandparents so they could go out and work and so he wouldn't hurt himself. And in a fire, it just incinerated him. In Australia, people with Down syndrome get all kinds of opportunities. It's tough life, but there's schools. There's an understanding. In our community, if you had Down syndrome, it was understood you'd done something terrible in your life to deserve it. And so it was not uncommon for people with disabilities to be tied and held up like that. Some were even put in cages. But of course, when fires come, I mean, it's a hell of a way to live. But it's also a hell of a way to die like that. And over the years, in small and big ways, disappointment fills our hearts. But we haven't got to the people we wanted to get to. This, is, this fire happened just not, you know, 50 metres from our house. We didn't even know this little boy was there, you know. Um, we're supposed to be our urban neighbours of hope, and here we were, not even knowing this little kid was there, you know. And so uh, it's really important. Where do we go with this stuff? Where do we go with our disappointments? These Psalms of Lament have become really important to me. Psalm 13 is uh, one of them. Um, How long, O God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Something happens in these psalms of lament as we, instead of just accumulating disappointment and callousing our hearts, lament opens our hearts. We're not in denial anymore. 
We're being in touch with what is really happening in our lives and in our spirit. And we give this to God in these psalms of lament and God takes them. And in an amazing way, God joins with our lament. Because God hates children with disabilities being burnt as well. Even more than I can ever feel. He feels it. He feels the suffering of that. And if we enter into these psalms of lament, express them to God, it is amazing what can happen. Mysteriously, supernaturally, hope can emerge. I would argue that we can't have genuine hope unless we've been through lament. Hope is not about wishful thinking, being in denial about what's going on in our lives. Real hope comes as a fruit of lament, a fruit of finding out what is not working, what is breaking our hearts and breaking God's heart. Um, it is interesting that there are these psalms then of new orientation. And uh, Psalm, even at the end of this psalm, uh, Psalm 13, there is this kind of change that kind of comes at the end. But I will trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Or in Psalm 9, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. That word hope is an amazing Hebrew word. Tikwa is the the word. Uh, Literally, it means rope. In fact, you know the story of Rahab, the prostitute who hides the spies in her house and, and they do a deal, you know. We won't dob you in to the authorities uh, and we'll let you escape um, from Jericho, but, uh, but make sure my family gets saved. And they, they say, okay, let us out by these ropes and put these ropes in your window and uh, we'll know when we come that your family is to be spared. And, uh, of course, the Israeli spies are good to the word. Rahab's uh, family is saved. Well, the word rope that is used here is tikwa. It's the same word. Uh, it doesn't make sense, of course, to, to figuratively talk about climbing out of the window with hope <laughs> or putting hope in the window. Uh, it's literally rope. And uh, this metaphor is not about wishful thinking. It's about pulling forward into the present the good things that God has for the world. Hope is about pulling on to the rope, pulling forward into the present, the good things that God has for the world. And of course, in the New Testament, we find uh, in Hebrews, for example, that Jesus is the ultimate rope, that the risen Jesus is, uh, is there. We're encouraged to hold fast to the hope set before us, which is the risen Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits of new creation. It's what the whole world will become. It's like the resurrected body of Jesus. It's different to the current bodies that we have, the resurrected Jesus. He wasn't just resuscitated. He wasn't just a spirit. The resurrected body of Jesus is what all the world will become. When God's will, God's realm of heaven integrates with God's realm of earth, uh, our bodies, our world, our places 
will be like the resurrected Jesus. That is our hope. And uh, it is an interesting thing that, I, that uh, as we take this initiative with God, Lord, what your promise will come, let it come now. Let's anticipate, live as if the future has begun. Um, uh, we've been through this lament, but there's something to hang on to now that it won't always be like this. That dream is an important dream. Uh, uh, and it's important for mission, it's important for sustainability. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Andy Flanagan, encouraged me to think about what Clontoy would be like, the slum community would be like, if God's will was fully being done, if heaven, when heaven comes on that great day, that we've worked so hard for, when everything else has kind of been burnt away, what would it look like? And this was an imagination exercise I did. And I wonder if you could do it for your workplace, for your neighborhood, for your, uh, the people you love in your life. Now Kong's toys people and places are so often facing deadly diseases, violent disturbances and premature deaths. When that great day comes, all tears will be wiped away and nothing will be able to stop Klong to his people connecting joyfully with the Creator, each other and our land. There will be health, fit and health, healthy, fit and happy people who all love playing football together without referees on lush green grass where there used to be open sewers, polluted swamps and dumping areas. Now Klong toys people and places are so often easy pickings for organised crime, corruption and political cronyism. When that great day comes, all injustices by people and powers we put to right in Klontoy. There'll be a fresh start and all relationships will work well for each other's personal health and well-being, especially for those who were formerly isolated, exploited or alone. Now Klontoy's people and places are often so isolated, exploited and getaways from the earth's resources and by economic powers. When that great day comes, Klongtoy will be a holy city, valued and honoured as an indispensable part of the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a constant awareness of God's universal life-giving presence, creative unity and enough for all. A walk down to our market will remind each person deep in their bones that they were made in God's image for a real purpose to offer others. Lord, let your kingdom come. That your will be done in Klontoy as it is in heaven. Um, just a few months ago, uh, this cycle of orientation, disorientation, new orientation is something that isn't static. Just a few months ago, uh, there was a fire, another fire in Klontoy, and this time it burnt down Pooh's home, Pooh's mum and dad's home, her cooking school and the neighbor's house where this fire originated. Everything was gone in an instant. Everything that Pooh had been working for was gone. And uh, there was a, a time of disorientation, a time of chaos, a kind of disappointment. What, what is going on? We've got so far. And yet Pooh drew on the resources that God had given her others and people and within a few days she'd moved into our old house and others um, to help get the cooking school and tourists to go to another part of Klontoy <laughs> and, uh, and within a few months they'd rebuilt it 
And there is um, this cycle that happens of new orientation, of new life, that, uh, that there are no you know, honeymoon kind of Hollywood endings in our lives. It's a constant cycle. There's always a sequel <laughs> in our lives. We always follow this kind of pattern in our lives. No matter how good things start off being, there will be a time of disorientation. Where will we go with it? Will we just kind of accumulate disappointment in our hearts and lives? Or will we move into lament and find real hope and purpose? Not only for our own hearts and lives, but for those around us. I do want to show a short video clip just as we finish and have, um, have Ange come for questions. This is where we'll be going in 10 days' time. Uh, in May last year, we had this very strong sense that uh, I was visiting the UK looking for an Urban Neighbours of Hope team to take up an invitation to go to Birmingham in the UK and I uh, had this deep sense in my spirit, wow, if I had another life, I think I would love to be here myself and do this. And we'd been working my own role out of, you know, from managing everything and being a hub for every spoke that, you know, had been doing in five cities at that time when, with uh, nine teams and publishing arm and training arm. And uh, as a kind of founder, it's really important that we kind of get out of the way sometimes. And we're starting to feel that. And by October, we let go of Urban Neighbours of Hope and were invited by the Church of the Christ in the UK to join them to help develop a training, international training program for, um, for urban workers and leaders and uh, also for Ange uh, to be able to work with Oasis in resurrecting failed government schools and helping them become a hub for community life, not just as a school, but churches, social enterprises, groups, helping, helping this whole neighbourhood become like a village centred on Jesus. And so uh, that's what we go to do. Little did we know when we agreed to do this uh, that one of the schools that Angie we based at in Winston Green, uh, a documentary series had been filmed about it. The school kind of reopened for the summer, for the, after, the, sorry, after the winter holidays, as an Oasis Academy, the day it opened, uh, this documentary series went to air. And, but it will give you a sense of where we're going to. Thanks, Jess. You see this street here? James Turner Street was one of the best streets. Unemployed, unemployed. No, one of the worst. James Turner Street in Birmingham is not your average street. There are 99 houses. 13 nationalities. And most of the residents are claiming benefits. Probably 5% of people on this road that are working. But times are getting tougher housing benefit is going to get caught. What kind of nonsense is that? They're having to learn to get by on less. How are we supposed to live on £50 a week? And rely on each other more. If the cabs won't come and pick it up, we'll do it ourselves. Some guy! It's mad. It's just like one great big family. Is there any point? Don't talk to me. Is there any point? Do not talk to me. I don't think you could ever meet anything any more dysfunctional. <laughs> Holy Mary, Mother of God, send me down a couple of bob. <laughs> Over the course of a year, through good times and bad, life on James Turner Street. I've never lived 
get out my kids ever. Would be challenged like never before. It's not all about money. You can have all the money in the world and have nothing compared to what we've got around here. That's a round. So it's literally the school that Andrew be based from. We're behind that building there. If Andrew would come here, we've just got five minutes or so for questions. If uh, if you'd like to um, have a, come back with us with anything, questions or comments. I'm just—it's actually really great to be here. Thanks for having us, and thank you for having such a normal name of a church. After being away for about 12 years, all the churches have renamed things like "Where's Flow" and "Liquid" and "Big Fish, Little Sea," and and you guys say what you are, your community church. Oh, yeah, I know what that does. It feels like they're feminine hygiene products or something. I'm waiting for tampon church. Anyway, so um, don't know why I went there with that, but anyway, yeah. I don't know if anyone's got anything they'd like to ask or comment or share something that kind of, I guess, touched your heart in what Ash was sharing. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, my daughter's been doing year 12, and so I came back early in uh, about Easter time to kind of support her. Ange and Aidan came back in June. We had a farewell from Urban Neighbours of Hope in June. And then uh, we've kind of been, Angie's been doing a bit for concern with Bruce, and uh, I've been doing bits and pieces of Urban Seed and been living in it, Swanson Street. Uh, but really it's about transition and getting ourselves ready for, yeah, literally 10 days' time we moved to Birmingham. So, uh, so a lot of it's been trying to gear up for that. Um, yeah, but it's, it is an odd kind of time. I think between Easter and now, I think I've slept in something like 50 different beds uh, as we've kind of moved around and at one point the housing stuff didn't work out and I was literally kind of couch surfing in different friends' houses. Um, so I do feel a bit like a vagrant and looking forward to having my own home. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, that video was actually taken, uh, done about three years ago or four. Yeah, yeah, two or three years ago. So there's actually a team of 12 missionaries now there. Actually, it's quite funny. We were in the process of recruiting a couple from the UK. And a lot of what I was doing towards the end was medical stuff, which I shouldn't have been doing, like giving injections and uh, all of that kind of stuff. There's no palliative care in Thailand, basically. So when you're dying, you just get sent to a little tin, tin shack, which is your house, and you die in 40-degree heat. And there's, um, they'll give you morphine, but unless someone in your house knows how to inject it, you're just left there dying in pain so I started doing a lot of that and we realized we really needed to get somebody with some actual medical skills so we um we recruited a nurse from the UK who joined us last year in September and then a doctor and his wife's a youth worker and they actually just moved into our house last month so we left everything there and they just moved into our rat infested house and uh, they left their furniture for us in the UK. I think we did got the good end of the deal and that's waiting in Birmingham for us. So I think the team transition is always hard for everyone and obviously when we do life with people, that was our family. Our neighbours were our family and that's been very... I think I had 19 farewells, put on five kilos with all the meals that were cooked towards the end and that was really heartbreaking because I think I thought I'd be there for the rest of my life. 
I still hope to go back there one day. For our son who was born there, that's all he knew was that community. And he's found Australia very tough, actually. But really excited to go to the UK and, and start to make friends and, and live life. So I think things will change. I think what was sustainable for us, I'm very hyper and I like running everything with lots of chaos and creating, Leanne knows that because she used to organise my chaos. We worked out you could start a microenterprise by just having an idea and making a brochure and then it was all official and then we started to work out, oh, you need actually online booking and all that came later. And um, But that's not a sustainable way of working for everybody and so what the team have had to find out is what they can sustain. So we left behind 17 projects and I sort of had a finger in a lot of those and so some of those won't continue, I think. And that's hard to watch, so that's why I need to be over in the UK, not looking. And um, But God's in that, isn't it? It's not about us, it's about what the people themselves can do. And the beautiful thing, at one of our farewells, one of the ladies got up. She's been a um, prostitute since she was 17. Uh, she was our next door neighbour and she was a real angel to us. I think God gave her to us. She's the only person who had about three words of English when we moved there and we had one word of Thai. And um, so she, we became very close. And it was her idea to start a handicrafts project so other women didn't have to do what she did. And uh, when uh, we announced that we were leaving, there's a lot of tears, and she got up and said, well, okay, it's our turn now. These guys have done this, but now it's our turn to step up and we have to run it. And she has been bossing everyone around. They love it, not. <laughs> but so I think actually getting out the way helped other people realise that they could do a lot more than they realised. And, and so it was probably harder for us than them <laughs> in one sense. One more question. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a very serious issue for men. There's very little space in broader society for men to express their concerns and hopes. And actually for me, uh, does anyone know Richard Rohr? Is that a familiar name for people? Uh, he's helped initiate this men's rights of passage. The idea being in, uh, in Western cultures, we've lost our ability to help boys become men. And, uh, and we need to... Uh, and so you find you know, 55-year-old boys you know, acting incredibly immaturely. And part of Richard Raw and others are kind of saying, we need to help create space for this. So I went on a men's rights of passage uh, in Scotland, in Perth in Scotland. And one of the days we had was a day of lament. And you do those, uh, has anyone done these men's rites of passage? I don't know um, if anybody does. Yeah, it's not supposed to tell all the dads, but we'll give one exercise away, which I didn't know would work or not. But it kind of, for me, showed that um, actually a lot, for a lot of men, we just kind of push it down and soldier on. And actually uh, what happens is that it comes out in other ways. That which is not transformed gets transmitted and often into the lives of those who love us. We become cranky old men. I found myself being a, becoming a cranky old man, and she didn't notice. But um, So in this men's rights passage, the day of grief, one of the exercises they did is men are on the outside of the circle, out in the middle of the bush, and, uh, and we just yelled out that which we're disappointed about, angry about, upset about, yelling it at the top of our voices. That was the idea. In the outside circle, inside circle, you go in, and you stamp and you bang drums and you cr crash with rocks and things and you walk around. Not allowed to speak, just kind of make noise. And in the middle, there's sackcloth and ashes and you just wail. Now, I've run youth groups and run events, participatory events all the time. And I honestly thought probably five, ten minutes max of this. 
it went for three hours. The volume of this thing really nearly blew the tent away. And I realized, well, for myself personally, but also for the men in the room, where do we get to express this stuff? And if it doesn't get expressed, it finds its way out into other places. So I'd recommend uh, Richard Rohr's work. Adam's Return is probably one of the best ones. Um, but really, the, the men do need to grow up. We need to realize we're not in control. We're not the center of the universe. Uh, all these kinds of you know, life is hard. We are going to die. These are, are life lessons that traditional men's rights of passage helped establish. But, uh, but each of us, even me as a 40-something, I needed to kind of revisit and, and really touch base with that physically. A lot of, again, a lot of teaching is kind of the head and hopefully gets to your heart and then eventually out to your body. This kind of, these rites of passage are almost the opposite. You physically feel this stuff and it kind of goes to your heart and then sometimes you rationally kind of understand what's going on. But, um, but I think there is, yeah, a real need for more and more of these kinds of experiences, particularly for men. Um, and I think there is a crisis of men not taking responsibility, not taking initiative, becoming passive, and, and um, it needs to change. Mm. That funny, fun note. Yeah. Yes. Sure. One of the things... Sorry, the question was, how do we demonstrate God's care for God's concern for the poor in this kind of community? And one of the things, about four years ago, I brought a group of Thai women from the slum to Australia. And often we did a whole lot of different events. The women were asked via me, because I translated, how hard is it to come from a slum and see what we have here in Australia and then have to go back to the slum? And resoundingly, the women said, we feel sorry for you in Australia. We couldn't live like this. And what really struck them was the poverty of loneliness and isolation in this country. And um, Blaran actually, Noi, cried one night. And I remember Noi, we were at, in Sydney, we'd just done this amazing event, and Noi said, we're walking around Darling Harbour. She said, I could never live here. She said, I'm here with nine people and I'm lonely. It's so lonely here. And I think you all know what, you see that all around you. We see the people on the street, disenfranchised, lost touch with families and friends. And so when people would ask, how can we support you? How can we, what is it that you and Ash need to go on this journey? What we need is Christians to get involved with the poor in their neighbourhoods. That's what it's going to take. It's, there's no um, silver bullet to solving poverty. It's one person getting to know one poor person and going on a journey with them. And the poor are all through this community. And um, yesterday I was, we live in Swanson Street at the moment, and you'd think, you know, it's a posh part of town. I'm just walking along, going to the shop, and there was a guy, looks like he's run off from the hospital, and by the time I got out of the shop, he's there standing there completely naked, taking bandages off. And I was uh, saying to Nathan before, I was actually a little bit scared. I wanted to help, but I didn't know what to do. And I think often we don't get involved because we're scared. And it's really awkward. And I had this experience in Thailand we were, had a little church service and I went out. My son was a baby at the time. And there was a local, even in the slum, there was levels of poverty. And so there was a local guy who was the homeless kind of heroin addict roaming around. And he was laying face down in the middle of the road. And I looked at his back and I thought, he's not breathing. His chest isn't. So I thought, I have to do something. We just talked about the Good Samaritan. So I 
put my son down, I squat it down, I roll him over. As I roll him over, he wakes up, looks at me, screams, jumps up in front, I scream, my son starts screaming, he runs away. <laughs> and a few weeks later, we were out one night and we saw somebody lying on the ground that we thought, oh, and I'm like, no, no, just leave it, just leave it. And as we walked on, we looked behind and an emergency team arrived and he was actually dead. And because of the uncomfortable experience I'd had the two weeks earlier, I didn't respond to the other guy. So don't be put off when you've had an awkward experience and maybe find others who want to do it. It's never fun doing this stuff on your own. You have to do it as part of a community and do it together and um, include people. And there's people in this church already doing amazing stuff. And I was just talking to Nate about his tonight, last night. There are broken kids that guys that concern others work with who are really hard case and the and they need people to love them and care for them. And, and uh, yeah, so I just encourage you to, to look. Uh, Ash often will say, where you stand determines what you see. Sometimes we think there's no poverty in Australia because we're just so focused in our little world at work and the shops we go to. But if we are willing to change that a bit and maybe go and sit at the Carlton Flats for a few hours or down at the Collingwood Flats, go and sit on that corner at Smith Street. There's always some classic characters and action and just get chatting to people and then God takes it from there. Uh, one of my heroes that I got to meet was Jean Venier and uh, he started the Ash communities, people with disabilities and uh, he'd read my PhD thesis and did the forward to the book so I gave him a copy and we caught up and he, he looked at me and asked me a whole range of questions around the research. Why is it one in six people in slums? Where did that number come from? He's really sharp, 86 years old tall man, you know, about six foot four, but he glowed Jesus. And he is the kind of person I want to be like, you know. I don't want to be that grumpy person. I want to be a person who glows in my life. But he put his arm around me and said, Ash, you know, uh, you can't be the solution to urban poverty. It's too big. <laughs> but you can be a sign, a sign of hope, a sign of the kingdom, a sign of what God wants done in the world. You can be a sign shine at being that and it just kind of released me rather than having a kind of god complex about trying to fix everything for everyone all at once we actually can't do that but we can love people and we can connect with people and we can be a sign of what god will eventually do in the whole world we can do that if you are interested in our book and reading some of this stuff further i've got some copies here risky compassion our story of the good samaritan and we've kind of connected our own experiences and stories in Klongtoy. and if you want to to find out some more can I, could you stand can i pray for you lord i thank you for the special thing you're doing in this church i can feel it i can sense it and Lord, I know there are some folks who are just starting out on the journey. Lord, give them faith to step out of the boat. Give them faith to overcome fear and reach out to those who are around them. Lord, I know there are some people today who are disappointed and things haven't worked out in other ministries and other churches. And even here, there's been folks who are, it hasn't kind of been what we thought it would be. Lord, I pray that you would give them that spirit to lament and express their concerns to you. Not to go into denial, but to find hope. And I pray for each of us, Lord, that we wouldn't be the solutions. We wouldn't pretend that we're gods, but we could be a sign for you with those we share our lives with. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, friends. Beautiful. I'll just wait here and we'll pray for you.
Maybe it's Beth and some of the justice team and anybody else who has a connection with, well, you don't have to have a connection if you want to come and just pray. Um, and uh, 11 days' time going to Birmingham, my goodness me. It's a tough place. Beth, would you like to pray for these guys? God, I thank you so much for... Ash and Angie and their two beautiful children. And Lord, I thank you for their story thus far and how you have been working in it um, and how you've been shaping them and molding them. Lord, I thank you for how you take us through that orientation and disorientation, that process of lament. Lord, I pray that um, you would protect them as they do that and how they do that well um, as they move to Birmingham. Lord, I pray for... Um, soft soil when they get there, um, that things would grow quickly, that they would um, find support, they would find people um, to help them navigate a new environment, um, that you would put people there ahead of them. Um, and God, I just pray that you would smile on them, that you would bless them and, um, and continue to, yeah, just... Uh, Bless their words and their ministry as they inspire and challenge all of us. Holy name.